Hello, I am Dr. Barbara Crow, Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Science at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. Welcome to the Fireplace Series, interdisciplinary and impromptu exchanges between two speakers from different areas of research. Each brings curiosity and generosity. Together, they explore common and uncommon ground. The Fireplace conversation you are about to hear took place on the 28th of March, 2019, between two Queen's professors, Dr. Julie Salverson from the Dan School of Drama and Music and the Cultural Studies Program, and Dr. Robert Way from the Department of Geography and Planning. The topic of their talk together is ecological grief. Welcome everyone. My name is Laura Jean Cameron. I'm a professor in the Department of Geography and Planning. We're living in a time of increasing ecological loss, and some are being forced to feel it more acutely than others. For instance, temperatures are warming much faster in the north of Newfoundland and Labrador than in the rest of the world. And with the loss of sea ice, people's home places have been changing rapidly. The conversation today is about ecological grief. The concept is emerging as a complex and interdisciplinary one, open to a range of methodological and epistemological interpretations. Helping us to approach it, we have playwright and scholar Dr. Julie Selverson and northern environments expert Dr. Robert Way. In the spirit of the fireplace chats, they've only recently met. So their connection is quite new, and their conversations exploratory. Robert Way joined my department just this year, and it's been great getting to know him and his work. He's a physical geographer who specializes in understanding the impacts of climate change on the terrestrial cryosphere. And that means impacts on glaciers, permafrost, and ice. Dr. Way's research has focused particularly on understanding the magnitude of climate change in the Arctic work that has been highlighted by the International Panel on Climate Change in its most recent assessment report. He operates a remote network of climate stations across Labrador, which support climate monitoring and adaptation initiatives in the region. Robert is of Inuit descent, Nunat Savumiat, and was born and raised in the central Labrador community of Happy Valley, Goose Bay. He has witnessed firsthand how changing ice and snow conditions have impacted traditional hunting and travel routes, making climate change omnipresent in his life. Julie Salverson is a professor of drama and cultural studies at Queen's University and has served as artist in residence at the Royal Military College of Canada. She is a playwright of four plays that have been staged in Toronto, Sudbury, and Kingston a librettist of the opera Shelter, a fable for the nuclear age that has been produced in Edmonton and Toronto, and a facilitator of resiliency workshops for veterans, first responders, and others who have experienced trauma. Her book, Lines of Flight, an atomic memoir, has been described as a unique guidebook for life in the 21st century, addressing big questions like, how do we hold on to hope and find meaning? In this, and in her many other endeavors, she explores what it means to witness a terribly beautiful world and the role stories, the imagination, and the absurd play in how we live. 
Julie, Robert, a really warm welcome to you. Thank you. Hi. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't mind them. Yeah, yeah. It's fine. <laughs> so, how do you want to begin? <laughs> well, first of all, I am actually really... Um, it, it, it's an honor to be here to talk about something that matters. I mean, yeah. a lot. And, and I think that speaks to the number of people in the room. I don't know many of you, but the ones I do know, I know how deeply this matters. So it's kind of an honor and a responsibility to talk about something that matters. Um, I did have a thought, which was to, we have a connection around Goose Bay. Yeah, we do. But I don't know why it's called Happy Valley. Uh, yeah, it's kind of... Uh, I actually don't think I know the, the, the accurate story, but um, at least what I was told is that uh, Happy Valley Goose Bay is an amalgamation of two communities. One, Goose Bay was a military base, and Happy Valley was where the uh, residents, uh, kind of the people living in Labrador at the time, moved to when the construction of the base was going on. Mm -hmm. And I think it just was... Uh, I don't know, perhaps the people were happy there or, or that's where uh, uh, people working on the base went to actually do activities and things like that. But it was, um, yeah, it, it initially had a different name and uh, uh, there's actually been a few names over the years. So it's, it's evolved, but now it's just one community, Happy Valley Goose Bay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, but your, your connection, you were in, uh, were you in Northwest River, Sheshi? I was in Sheshi, yeah. Yeah. Um, so and Goose Bay. Yeah, in uh, the, the central Labrador region, there's three communities together uh, that are separated by, let's say, a half-hour drive. And one is the First Nations uh, Inu community, Sheshi. Another is uh, Happy Valley Goose Bay, which is kind of the major center for uh, Labrador and that is quite a mixed population. And then there's a, a small community, Northwest River as well. I'm actually missing another one, Mud Lake. And so between the four of these communities, it's a very um, dynamic region. So if you were to say uh, which of the major northern uh, communities in Canada have the most indigenous people in their region, that Upper Lake Melville region of those four communities has more than Iqaluit, for example. So it's quite a, but it's you know nearly evenly mixed between First Nations and Inuit people, and also uh, settler white people as well. So it's it's quite a unique environment there. And um, you visited there in uh, when would, did we figure out exactly no, when it was? I don't think so. Um, but it would have been it would have been probably in the seventies. I was. At the time, I was living in Toronto, yeah. and um, I was part of a group of people that, did, that worked in communities and did something called the AHA Seminar. The AHA Seminar is a process where it's a popular education process, and just quickly, you know, with, with a group of people trying to figure out something amongst themselves, they would draw their whole experience on a wall, and you facilitate that um, in order to, and in this case, it was about the low-level level flight testing, military testing, and there was going to there were going to be hearings, um, and people in the in the area, largely church people actually, wanted to facilitate groups of people living there figuring out what they wanted to say at these hearings and supporting them testifying at the hearings about their own land. 
Um, and I, when I was asked, I said, I've never been there. Why would you want me? I'm an outsider. And they said, well, there's a very, it's very divided in this, these communities about this issue. So we wanted someone as an outsider. But my, the memory I remember the most is being on the snowmobile in the winter, going across the, the frozen lake. Yeah. And that, that it was a tiny community. And usually, you know, you draw a, a home that represents all our homes. Mm-hmm. But there... We couldn't move on until everybody's home was on the piece of paper. And one of the things that happened was a, a woman drew the plane, one of the military testing planes, and she drew the, the face of the pilot. And as an outsider, I said, you, you can see the face of the pilot in your drawing. And she said, yeah. And everyone went, yeah, 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 which showed us that they were too low. So that little tiny yeah, it, memory it, is stuck with me. It's, a, it's an interesting reflection as well because uh, for a brief period I, I worked um, on contract for a group. Uh, they were called the in- Institute for Environmental Monitoring and Research. And what they actually were was a uh, monitoring project established by the Canadian government really um, as a result of the environmental impact mm-hmm. assessment of low-level flying in that region. Mm-hmm. Um, so their main goal at the, the place I worked was they would actually put um, uh, satellite collars on caribou and other species, and uh, they would try and mitigate the impacts of military training in, in Western Labrador on these species by essentially sending out to the government, this is where there's a lot of caribou you should avoid here when you're flying. And that was some of those protests uh, of the late 70s, early 80s, are really uh, the mechanism through which there was a need for the environmental impact assessment mm-hmm. and this process that was then followed that allowed uh, monitoring to stay in place for many years and actually brought together uh, 14 different indigenous groups and had a positive working relationship, which is, is tough when, when there's a lot of different people from coming from different perspectives. Um, unfortunately, that group was cut in 2012 as part of the right. budget after about 20 years. But, right. you know, um, it's a very unique and interesting connection to have for, uh, yeah. you know, upon we, our we initial had no meeting. Idea. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think it, it does speak to the broader point in regards to ecological grief for um, people, even today, this question of low-level flying and its impacts on, on people on landscape or and the landscape is one that is still brought up quite a bit um, in, in those communities because there's been a, a massive decline in, in the caribou herds locally. So, um, you know, that's been thrown out as, as some sort of uh, reasoning behind it, but it's a much more complex story and you know, climate change comes to play, uh, mineral development comes to play into why these herds have declined. But um, this question of ecological grief and people responding to how uh, environments that they care about are changing is one that in my region where I'm from, um, we see most prominently in the context of caribou mm-hmm. herd decline because it was such a something that was relied upon so heavily by people and now there's a, a ban in effect where people can't hunt it, right? Well, and you were saying uh, the difference between going back there, going home, yeah. and seeing 
say, maybe tell us again, you um, know, the it, difference for you and yeah, what you do. Yeah, we, we had a brief, when we were briefly talking, I had mentioned that, uh, so the herd at its maximum in the early 90s had nearly 900,000 animals, and the most recent estimate is 5,000. So we're talking about a tremendous decline, and, you know, in my lifetime, it was uncommon if in the winter we drove up this particular road to Nazi Nazi caribou and sometimes we would see thousands just covering all the lakes and all this and uh, I had reflected fairly recently we've we've been doing a lot of field work in Labrador the last uh, 10 years or so and since really the ban took effect around that time period I've seen three caribou in maybe seven years or something and in the years previous, you know, we would be driving up the road and have to be beeping our horn to get them off the road because they were everywhere. And, um, you know, we, in my family, we would eat two or three caribou a year, and, you know, that was kind of very common. And yet, now you never see them, and you, in fact, see moose, which was something we didn't really see often, and also uh, we didn't eat, right? It, it wasn't, you know, it was something people said that the, the Newfoundlanders ate, but in Labrador is caribou. So for, it's a very dramatic change um, and how you feel about the landscape changes a little bit when you're used to seeing something and it, and it, it isn't there anymore, right? Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of what we had discussed beforehand. Well, I'm, I'm thinking, grief is a big thing. And, yeah. and maybe it's impossible to grieve until you even know you're grieving. And one of the things that, you know, my, my uh, friend Mickey is here, and her sister Kim Renders was one of our most amazing professors and a colleague of mine, and she died last summer. And it's really recent, and it's really fresh. And when you, when you love a person who's close to you, 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 you probably aren't surprised at what you're going to go through when you lose that person. But I, I wonder how, how do we even know what we're losing? Um, and there, I, I can't remember his name, but because I've been thinking about this a little bit and walking here and thinking about this, there's a, uh, an environmentalist from Senegal, and in the 60s, he said he thought that our crisis was one of compassion, but he related it to place, and he said, you can't fight for something you don't love, and you can't love something you don't know. Yeah. And... I, I have myself, and, it, and partly because of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the, and the relationship between being a settler and coming from away and yet coming from away, it, you know, what, what is my own background? What is my place? And, and trying to work with my students to say, how do we have to figure out ourselves, as in, if, you know, not being indigenous, we have to figure out our relationship to place. And I think, okay, how can I slow down and think about my own heritage and the resources I have in that heritage to be here, to be here in a, in a, in a compassionate way and in a, in a listening way. Um, and some of that's about, you know, some of that's absolutely to me about slowing down and feeling. And then who would, there's a, a woman named Patri- uh, Patricia Fraser, she's in Vancouver, and I was on the committee for her thesis. And she's a beautiful writer, and she's a beautiful person, and she's very close to the land out there. And she was talking about Hannah Arendt and a crisis of, compa- of compassion and, and the inability to feel 
the revelatory presence of the planet. And she was talking about the importance of us feeling the planet. And I said in one of our conversations, you have to help us know why on earth we would want to do that right now. And that's where I sit, is how to feel, how painful it is. I saw something flashed on my phone yesterday, which was an ocean of plastic, and I just kept going. I thought, no. And yet, and this I'm thinking also of, of the, you know, how do, we, how do we listen to the life? 14 communities that maybe it's not so easy to work together, um, who work together, mm-hmm. you know? And you have to be listening for something alive to do that, I think, not just something that's dying. I think one of the things with uh, this entire topic, and when I've thought about it, and it's actually, as I've gotten older, I've thought more about it, is I feel myself having more regrets as I get older about not having been more uh, in the moment, in the past, when some before some of these changes occurred. Mm-hmm. You know, like you, it, it was when you see uh, the caribou example. When you see all these caribou all the time, it's so easy to normalize um, uh, and not necessarily think about uh, how you would feel if they weren't there, right? So at the time, you just always expect you're going to see them again. It's always going to be part of your life. But now, I, you know. I, I go to look back and I barely even took photos, you know, it, it's like it was that common a part of, of your life and you sit now today and, and you think uh, the few in- instances I've seen a caribou since then, it's like, oh, this really exciting thing and you're taking all these photos and you're so excited about it and then you think, gee, of all the opportunities that, that you know, yeah that you had previously but were in a different mental space where maybe you weren't necessarily uh, fully absorbing, you know, the, the environment uh, around you. And that's one of the things in the context of thinking of, um, e- even in thinking of, of kind of those who spend a lot of time on the land and Indigenous people in particular, um, you know, there's a necessity of being attentive um, to what you're doing, you know, whether you're hunting, whether you're harvesting, whether you're just spending time on the land. And there's something to be said for that because we, we certainly as a society, as time seems to have gone on, our level of attention, um, it's like you almost have to put energy into fo- forcing yourself to be attentive because our natural state is now uh, moving towards always having something else either on your mind or that you're doing or or whatever and so even in having a conversation like this and thinking about these things um, how often do we in a regular life actually have this kind of chat and and actually think about um, I guess the impact that some of these changes that that we've seen have actually had on you as a person because we're so busy doing just the day-to-day um, kind of run. I, I really think this is at the heart of, of so much, this, the speed of it all. And I'm, I, I, I want to ask you about your teaching in a minute, because I'm thinking about my students, and I don't know about folks in the room, but it seems to me the increase in emails about anxiety, if someone's able to tell you that they're anxious, the level of anxiety in students, and, and the speed with which they're supposed to live... Uh, and the speed with which we ask them to live, and, and what does it mean to try to rein back and really slow down in the classroom? 
um, while we're all being asked to do more and more and more in our lives ourselves. Um, and yet, you know, we, we read an essay in my, I have a class that's on being a witness, and it's on ethics and being a witness, and it's for fourth year undergrad drama class. And we read an essay um, about something called shimmer, which is an idea from um, uh, Aboriginal Australia, Northern Australia, Victoria River. Shimmer, they, shimmer, this woman, Deborah Rose Bird, writes about this. She says shimmer is the life force, really. And she, she talks about it as being the, the, the energy of our ancestors. And the, listening to the students give a presentation on this, um, and talking about Donna Haraway, and talking about this is a writer who talks about staying in the trouble, you know, and what is it to stay in the trouble and to feel, to feel this stuff, um, but also other things. And there's, there's a project that she writes about, which is about coral reefs. And um, two sisters uh, just started a project where people, I don't know if people know about this, they started um, crocheting out of garbage coral reefs. And it's gone to 28 countries. It seems like it's the biggest public art project in the world. And I'm watching my students who are stumbling over all this biology in the essay. They're drama students, you know? And they said, this is really hard to read, but here's what this means and here's what this means. But there was this excitement about the ideas which were saying that we're actually, we're co-created together. You know, we're not individual all by ourselves, which, which suggests that the tiniest little thing might matter. It might matter, you know? And one of the students, and I haven't gotten this out of my head, talking about the coral reefs, and he said to us as a class, I don't have ethical clearance to tell you this, but I'm going to tell you anyway. He said, we are all coral now. And that image of us, we are all coral now, just, you know, I haven't lost it since that class. But so how, so, so for me, in class, it's, I feel like I want to bring these things in. It doesn't matter if it's not drama. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Slowing down and listening and being together as critters and people. And so do you feel like there's things in the class or from the students that? I, I think, I mean, I've, I've only this semester uh, started teaching uh, uh, here at Queen's in my first kind of coursework. And I would say that my interpretation is that certainly, like following on your initial point, the um, students, you know, there's a lot of competing interests going on and it, it does seem like there is, you know, uh, there's a lot of worry. I, I think I overheard a student say something uh, in class relatively recently saying, oh, they hadn't slept in 24 hours because they've been so busy. And I was thinking that's, that's, not good, <laughs> first of all. Um, not that we, that, that as students previously, I, I wouldn't have had those sorts of instances, perhaps, but I, it's certainly not healthy for you, um, uh, even mentally, right? But in trying to weave together, the course I taught was called The North, and it was meant to be um, a, a look mostly at the Canadian North in the context of of its physical environment and social character. So there's, there was a part that was very focused more on the physical side, there was a part that was more focused on the people side, and then a part focused on kind of the interactions between um, people and the environment. And I found that myself being a, a physical geographer, I actually found it was 
harder to connect with the students uh, when I was doing the, the hardcore physical geography mm -hmm. stuff for whatever reason. The, the course was, was very mixed amongst people's background, but it just seemed that on that end, there was a lot of um, more blank stares, you know, a lot more, uh, I don't know, a lot less uh, emotion involved. But as class went on, I, I had students watch a couple documentaries in, in class, and I was surprised at how attentive the students were. One of them was uh, Angry Inuk, it's called, and it's about uh, the impacts of uh, the European ban on commercial sealing on Inuit. And it's a very interesting look, and it's one of those things where I think for a lot of the students, they it was their first real exposure to um, just how negative the repercussions of that ban were, were on Inuit and, and in seeing how it was kind of told from the perspective of a, a person who's from Iqaluit and, you know, she had interviewed a lot of people on the land and, and you know, just it was, it was a story of how they were trying to lobby the European uh, government to, to drop this ban. And it's a really interesting story, but for the students... I can tell based on kind of their reflections that I've had them provide that it it spoke to a lot of them, particularly in recognizing how important for people, uh, in this case, the people of Baffin Island, um, uh, how important it was to them to spend time on the land, to use uh, seal for, um, you know, the various ways they would use it, whether it be clothing or whatnot, but also how in that case, by removing the commercial market, there was no way of offsetting costs associated with continuing some of these traditional um, activities. Mm -hmm. And so people ended up having to revert to more just food from the store and staying around. And then you have kind of these impacts on people um, in their mental health in these communities because, <clears throat> you know, you take someone who used to support themselves by sealing and then, you know, uh, via trade. And then the EU ban completely tanked the price of, of, of seal, um, seal products. And as a result, they can't offset their costs. And so then they don't go out. And then there's a complete loss of connection right. to, to the land and also reliant on store-bought foods, which if anybody has spent any time in the north uh, is not something that is um, easy to do even on a high salary, right? So it's, it's that one I think stuck with the students quite a bit um, compared to any other materials in the entire course really wow. was just um, because it was told from, you know, it was first of all the 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 creator of that film, she was young. So it's, it, mm. it's a bit more of a younger perspective as well. Um, but it was, I think, eye-opening for a lot of students to recognize the type of, in this case, quasi-ecological grief that people were feeling just by some uh, decision made in Europe, right? Um, yeah. And I think it, it actually changed quite a few people's minds on the idea of commercial sealing. Um, right. Well, that's when you were talking about the caribou, the complexity of these things. Yeah. yeah. And that, that we don't automatic, one thing doesn't automatically mean, mean therefore do this, which is why 
the contact and the you know to to know enough to learn enough about that yeah it's i mean it's always hard to put yourself in in someone else's shoes right unless you've spent mm -hmm. uh some amount of time to uh to actually try and see how people um live and develop empathy and developing empathy is always always something you know in a polarized world and things seem like they're getting ever more polarized yeah. this yeah. idea of being able to empathize and actually um mean it is, is challenging right um but it's, it's important and in the context of our broader discussion ecological grief and how you know changing environments that people care about matters um I think it's very easy to compartmentalize because we're so inundated with news of, you know, areas of the world that are experiencing um, some form of, of negative interactions with people or with climate. And, but yet in the same vein, if, if that, if, if the city comes along and decides that they want to uh, chop down that tree in front of your house suddenly, suddenly you're there yeah yeah, yeah. Suddenly, suddenly that feeling is there right yeah yeah, yeah. well we're, we're taught to compartmentalize too I mean, yeah we're trained to do that and and sometimes maybe it's a protective mechanism oh you know, absolutely as well. so i i want to ask you about something that sounds like a weird segue and it's mm -hmm. trigger warnings mm -hmm. because when i was thinking about this i was thinking well we we actually need to feel more not less Mm -hmm. We need to be able to be angry. We need to be shocked by something. We need to be hurt by something. And yet there's a kind of protective, I think even infantilizing atmosphere around how hard it is to feel right now. Mm -hmm. So I wondered if you have any thoughts on that. I was just reading a paper recently that actually showed they, that, that, well, I, I don't you know, it, it's not a summary of all the literature. There's literature on both sides, but it doesn't seem like there's a lot of evidence even out in the literature that they do much positive versus negative. It's kind of even whether you do one or not. Um, I think, you know, I, I had this thought process when I was about to show that, that movie, Angry Inuk, because um, there is scenes in there where uh, obviously people are harvesting seal. And you're thinking in your mind, do I want to, to warn people about what they, they may see or do I not? And it ended up, for time purposes, the most graphic of that didn't make it in anyways. But um, I had mixed thoughts, but I don't think I was going to provide a significant amount of warning, maybe a little bit in regards to it. But in the same vein, there was something, some sort of usefulness in the idea that someone may be shocked by what they see, but and I'm trying to get at the root of why that, there, there's something, I guess, somewhat colonial in some ways to be shocked by that while watching this type of film, right? Um, but yeah, I, I have mixed feelings. I, I don't know, mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of a complicated question, mm -hmm. right? I think yeah. it's a complicated question. Yeah. I think it's coming up more and more in the university context, and I, I don't really know. I, I wonder if it's, I wonder if it's because, somewhat because of the necessity to bring feeling in. You know, we're, we're, we're trained in abstractions and, and concepts and, and superstructures, and you know, 
but not necessarily in feel, well, connecting feeling to thought, because I do, I do have too many students saying, I feel this, this, and I say, well, what do you think? You know, put it, but putting those things together is not really a literacy, yeah. I think, maybe. I think one of the challenges that generally I've seen in various capacities when teaching or speaking or whatever in, in you know, the past and present is being able to both feel and think at the same time is, is something that seems yeah. like people do struggle with. And, you know, you're allowed to be both saying something thought-provoking while being upset about about the topic, right? Like, um, but you also can't let your, how upset you are change how you would think about a topic because of that. Because, you know, uh, on the one hand, there's no such thing as being objective or whatever, but um, I tend to think that you, you can be upset and yet still make a, a, an important point but you just always have to be aware of where your emotions are taking you and not let it go to the point where it's uh, uh, dominating the discourse. But that's not the end of the world either, right? <laughs> well, and maybe it's a moment that has to lead to another moment yeah, exactly. so that you don't stop listening. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know about you, but you know, when, I, when I yell at my partner, <laughs> sometimes it's important to get to the next moment, but that, that moment's important too. Yeah. You know, um, my friend Emily Conjures here, and she works with the Adirondack, uh, Algonquin to Adirondack organization. And, yeah. you know, we were talking about airplanes. Well, I brought up it. We were looking at plastic. And, you know, Laura tried to get cream in a pot, and we got creamers in plastic. So even when you try, you know, and I, for me, I was saying that, that, that I, was just on a, I was just in Lethbridge. And one of the reasons I hate to be on a plane um, is all the plastic cups totally unnecessary to have all the plastic cups anyway and then you know I could see in Emily that anger right so what do you think about rage and anger and its relationship to grief and do, do we need more do we what do we do are, are they is it important do you want your you know what, I, I, what do students get enraged <laughs> I guess it all all that I think about is it depends on what you do with that anger yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um you know, there, there are ways that that, that can, you know, it, when it, in any issue, the the question you you can be ups, upset, you can be angry, you can be have all kinds of um, thoughts about whatever topic or or whatever you're dealing with at a given time. But you do have to sit back and ask yourself whether certain actions is going to make things, you know, worse or, mm -hmm. or better on on a whole, like, uh, is it always worth it to create a, an atmosphere that is toxic or, or whatever, yeah. if there's too much of that yeah. coming into play? And, you know, you always want to try to, when you're working, especially, especially in the context of, like, I work a lot with communities, um, <clears throat> and, you know, there are issues that, that can come up, uh, from an environmental perspective, from a change perspective, that can make you angry, certainly. And maybe there are times where, uh, you know, there, especially when you deal with governments, there are policies uh, that, that come up in regards to these that you get frustrated. And, um, 
as you know, everybody has their moments, but it's when when moments become extended that mm-hmm. that people stop wanting to to mm-hmm. move forward on things as well, right? Yeah, and maybe kind of crystallize too. Yeah, you know? yeah, exactly. Because you were talking about the polar- po- the sort of the polarity of the times. Yeah, and. Um, I don't know who it was, but I was listening to somebody on Tapestry on CBC, and she talked. She said, "She said these issues don't actually create communities anymore; they create camps." Yeah. And I thought that was really very helpful. Um, so go, you know, going back to this idea of a crisis of compassion, um, so, sometimes your you know, my rage can therefore create the enemies. And and how helpful how helpful is that? And how easy is that? And how much more difficult it is to sort of sit together. And now I'm thinking of Joy Kagawa. Do you know Joy Kagawa, Japanese-Canadian, wonderful, amazing woman who's become a friend of mine, and it's the joy of my life <laughs> to spend a conversation with her. But she, and she, in this beautiful book she wrote called Gently Towards Nagasaki, she talks about mm-hmm. these divisions and the enemies. And what's amazing about her book is that, and she's been attacked by many sides of many of several issues in her book because she will not take a side. And she talks about friendly fire. And she says, what if we discover that in our friendly fire, it's, it's, our, it's our closest kin that we've destroyed? And yet I think that's very difficult to do. It's difficult to not blame somebody for those plastic Mm-hmm. And we, you know, and you want to find the sources of it, and you want to look at what's the what are the rules that mean, you know, who has the who, who has the who has the job to bring us our cream, and how do we slowly and carefully, you know, maybe thinking about coral reefs again, how do we somehow slowly and carefully disentangle, you know, find the connections, and find some kind of compassionate, but you know, well, that's nonviolence, right? There's no, you know, Gandhi didn't say don't be angry. <laughs> yeah. Never, never said don't be angry. To have discipline, it's discipline to be, to, to keep acting without taking on what you're trying to get rid of. I think uh, this, this has reminded me of, of a couple things. Um, <clears throat> one of the things is that, so, I mean, coming from, coming from the north and spending a lot of time in northern communities, there, there's, there's, there's good and bad parts about being in a, a very tight-knit small yeah. community. <laughs> um, you know, people can probably guess some of the, the, the bad points in terms of, uh, you know, everybody kind of knows uh, what's going on in everybody's business and all that type of stuff. But on the other hand... One of the good things is that when you have connections to people and when people matter to you even when they're not your close friend, you're much, it takes a much bigger issue for uh, mm. that jadedness mm. to develop, right? Mm. Um, you know, it takes, there's, on some level, there's uh, some form of accountability in that, you know, you have to interact with these people all the time, and so you want to be, you know, you may not get along, you may not, whatever, but you want to have a positive relationship because, you know, uh, it's, it's a small environment, right? And that has good and bad points. Um, but it's, in indigenous communities, it's, 
even even more so. I mean, if the the Inuit way of life isn't doesn't involve a huge amount of anger, to be honest. Um, it, it's frowned upon <clears throat> to be angry. It's frowned upon to yell at your kids. It's frowned upon uh, to take that type of approach. I mean, they would, in, in some contexts, I've heard it mentioned that that's kind of like taking the, the settler approach to, mm-hmm. to things. Um, it's more of a... I, I guess there, there's some pride taken in, in, in those communities and in, in not uh, kind of stooping to the level of... of you know, especially when it comes to with with kids and young people, right? Who yeah. don't know better, right? Yeah. I mean, like, yeah. you really, if you're uh, if you've had a stressful day and you you yell at your kids because you've had a stressful day, they don't know you've had a stressful day. They're just you know a, a kid there, right? And that's the same thing when it comes to animals and all these mm-hmm. other mm-hmm. other things. Um, where I've seen the only instances in in my community where I have actually seen extensive jadedness has been in regards to things projects that had significant environmental change actually like i mean there's a hydro project uh muskrat falls it's called and it's just outside of of my community and for a series of reasons um there there are a huge amount of problems with how that went ahead and essentially the key thrust of it is, you know, the, the region has three indigenous groups who are living directly downstream and one group signed off on the project but the other two did not and the government kind of used that one group sign off as a rationale to go ahead with it. And it was basically that they said that the, there would be no impact downstream. Um, which is at the time, anyways, long story short, uh, it, it exposed some of the fissures in our environmental assessment system, whereby uh, government used the absence of information and evidence as a justification for proving there was no impact. And now in the time since, there's all kinds of science that comes out that says, well, pretty much everything that was said as being low impact is definitely there is more risk associated with that. And we've seen, you know, huge fissures in the community develop as a result of this, right? Um, And, you know, there were massive protests, there were massive issues going on, and it seemed like at some point there might be some progress in terms of putting in place additional environmental monitoring and people were more uh, happy with that, but, um, that hasn't really come to fruition. And what I've seen in the community now is just people resigned to the fact that they've basically lost, right? That, um, that this, you know, that downstream there may be impacts, maybe mercury levels will spike in the seals and the fish downstream and the ducks. Um, so at one point that rage had turned to something that actually led to supposedly positive change but it it fizzled out and now it's in that almost that grief mode where people are just um and the kind of the dual impact on that is that 
because this project was led by the provincial government um, and has gone massively over budget, they're then cutting essential services, which right. then impacts so no the people. Yeah, yeah, so, you know, it, it's been a really complicated scenario, but, you know, it's, it's out of all my lifetime there, it's, that's the issue I've seen the most people not just be upset about, but that it's, it's still there. It's years of being upset about it and, you know, losing friends in some ways over it and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And yeah. it's not a personal relationship thing. It's an ecology thing that yeah. um, seeing the change in the landscape, right? Yeah. And, uh, I mean, that's been a big one. The caribou hunt is another one where I've seen fishers develop, right, between the different indigenous groups. Yeah. Um, but yet we haven't seen fishers in other areas to the same degree. It's because, you know, in this region you care about the environment to some degree in a different way, maybe. Um, but yeah. When I was a teenager, the, um, the federal government decided to put an airport uh, where I lived, which was Pickering okay. Township, which is east of Toronto, yeah. about an hour. Yeah. Um, and we, I was in a very small village. We were surrounded by f farmers and farmland. And um, I remember at, at, again, hearings, people came. And one of the biggest influences on me when I was about 15 was the farmers who just brought bags of dirt and put them on the table. And, and, and I also remember the scoff, you know, the scoffing and the discomfort. And, well, I don't know how to talk to this, mm -hmm. which was kind of the point. You know, where do you think your food comes from? Mm -hmm. um, do, do people in the community you're just talking about make... I'm, I'm not going to ask this, but I'm, I'm, the question I'm asking myself is when a family member dies or a, an animal that... Mat, you know, close kinships, there are ways that people grieve. And... Do you think those ways are being acknowledged and applied to something like this? Well, so I, in my previous position, I worked under um, someone who her primary study area was ecological grief. Mm -hmm. And uh, Ashley Consolo is her name. She's a head of the Labrador Institute. And I think she would argue yes, based on um, based on uh, her data um, that they've been, but they and they've been looking in the context of climate change. So um, they've been essentially seeing some responses uh, in, in years where where climate conditions were very bad that people responded with with such high acute stress levels and anxiety levels that it was had some similarities to as if there there was something some cataclysmic event in that person's life had occurred um in in 20 in the winter of 2010 to 2011 there was um uh, temperatures in kind of northern labrador were uh, 10 degrees above normal for uh, almost two straight months and as a result, the ice melted, right? Mm -hmm. And so in some of these communities that are only accessible via, um, via ice in the winter slash plain, 
um, these community and, and these plants, they're small airstrips. They can't land under most conditions. <clears throat> these people felt trapped, right? And, and they weren't able to hunt. They weren't even able to leave their community. It was too icy for boat, but too, uh, the weather conditions were too bad for a snowmobile. And the response in some of their surveys, you know, they were essentially seeing anxiety levels amongst people that were similar to like if, yeah. if you had somebody uh, pass away in your family like uh, this type of very acute response in the aftermath of that um, and I think that has that's the type of thing I mean that sticks out to people uh, so people still talk about that that year um, mm. as if it was like a tragedy yeah yeah know? but um so there there are some similarities in terms of how strong it was felt amongst people but in terms of what it means i don't know i long term i think it would require those events to occur more frequently for it to be the same feeling as if you you lost someone because it's it's not omnipresent all the time yeah. Um, well, and, and I'm thinking, um, I'm thinking of, 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 of how, how, how it feels and what the experience of it is, but also of how to, how, how to, work, how to be with it mm -hmm. and how to support each other through it. And there's also the, the, sort, of, the sort of moving target. It's sort of a moving target. I mean, we're all, I would say, we're actually all losing our home, but we don't necessarily know it. Mm -hmm. um, or know it all the time. I mean, I'm glad I don't know it all the time, you know. But I, but I think that's kind of what's going on here. And um, there's this solastalgia, and I bring yeah, that up before, yeah. this idea of being homesick for a place that you've lost, that you're mm -hmm. in. And, you know, I think, I think these kinds of ideas are emerging because they need a place to, to be stuck to, you know. So... How do you how do you work through grief when there's no end? You know, I mean that's it, it doesn't have a temporal. Well, maybe I don't think life and death have the temporalness that we sort of ascribe to it anyway. But we can say, you know, my my father died this morning, and then we can say my father died a year ago, and I live through a relationship that can change with some kind of finitude, right? Maybe, mm -hmm. but here. Yeah, well, I think that, you know, it's interesting um, in the context of, you said solastalgia? Solastalgia. Solastalgia. Yeah. Um, so I've, I've often thought that one of the things that, that I've noticed even, it's, it's funny how, how connected to a place you can become, even if it's just... It's not even a major part of, of your life and how, that, how you can feel that, that somewhat level of homesickness. I mean, I, I did the, my undergrad in Ottawa and then <clears throat> went away for a couple of years to Munn slash in, uh, in St. John slash in Labrador and then came back to Ottawa U for my PhD. And from the start of my undergrad to the end of my PhD, Ottawa's grown a lot. And some of the areas that, that I used to spend time 
kind of on the outskirts that were very rural are now subdivisions, right? And even though you don't spend a significant <laughs> amount of time there, just passing through these areas frequently, I, I used to pass by, you know, a few times a week and sometimes you'd do a, an activity there or whatever. But yet, in pa if I pass through now, there there is that, you know, that feeling that you're a, a bit... Um, mm -hmm. You know, you miss a place that doesn't exist anymore, mm -hmm. and uh, it's going to continue to change. Back home, there's some major ones, but I, tr I try not to think about it all that much because it, it is a bit upsetting, you know, mm -hmm. like when you go through areas that that you really cared a lot about that have changed. Um, and every time you see that area, you feel that level of homesickness. I, I do wonder whether whether the degree to which we compartmentalize is more effective when it comes to ecological related things versus, you know, on a personal level. Yeah. I think when we're exposed to these things, uh, we feel very strongly, but, and maybe if we're sitting around reflecting on it, but I don't know that I uh, reflect on it all the time. Otherwise, you know, you'd be always reflecting on the mm -hmm. changes occurring everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. it, it would be hard to escape that. Well, and also, you, you don't necessarily want to go into a kind of, if I may use these words, kind of romantic purism about nothing should change. Yeah. I mean, yeah. even when you were talking about the caribou, I think it was when we were in Laura's office, you were saying there were ebbs and, I mean, this is a different, yeah. but but it's true that there would be ebbs and flows. Yeah. Uh, so, so how do we recognize change that, well, you know, is it, it, sometimes it's just evolution, you know, all these words are kind of fraught, but yeah, yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, I want to change. I hope yeah. I'm not the same person I was when I was 10. Mm -hmm. Time has been flying. Thank you so much. At this point, I would like to invite questions from the audience. I invite them to ask questions of you. So you can continue this conversation. So I won't feel like I interrupted you so badly. No <laughs> and we, maybe we can ask questions of them. Sure. <laughs> okay. Sure. So, do you want to come on up and say your name first, please? Hello. My name is Natalia, and I'm in, I'm in the geography department. Um, and I guess I wanted to share something very quickly and then ask a question. Uh, so I'm from Puerto Rico, so a lot of my family and friends survived Hurricane Maria in 2017. And though a lot had a lot of people had been talking about the life toll because it was high and it's very uh, controversial, and about the electricity because there were people that were without electricity for a whole year, not a lot of people have talked about the ecological grief that I think is very important. And to me, I saw it so much because the day before the hurricane happened, when we all knew it was uh, imminent, right? I had so many friends on Twitter pretty much saying, I'm going to go say goodbye to my favorite tree, you know, and, and, and that stuck to me. And then when I finally was able to talk to my mother, like two weeks later, because obviously the telecommunications were basically impossible, she was in the middle of a highway trying to connect with me. Like she was telling me about how bad it was, how she knew the, the, the window was going to explode, but when she actually broke down was when she told me, she lives in the countryside and she looks at the valley and she was like, the valley is gone. The trees are gone and she just like starts sobbing. So like that ecological grief, like I started to think about it and I didn't have the, 
I guess, vocabulary to talk about it. But then a song came out in 2018 by Uruguayan songwriter uh, Jorge Drexler. And in, in, in it, he talks about the last um, glacier in, in Venezuela, in Merida, which is called Pico Humboldt. And the song says, I hope that we can find a way of saying goodbye to glaciers. And like, there's a lot of ecological grief in all of that. And I just wonder, but there's also a lot of like fatalism or like pessimism about it, because a lot of you know, you, you have lost it, right? There were five uh, glaciers in Venezuela and there's one at the beginning of the last century and there's one left and they say it's going to be gone by the end of this, uh, the next decade. So like there's like a pessimistic and a real way of, of, of feeling that grief. But I also think about the ways in which grieving it can m make us change our relationship to nature. Uh, and so I just wanted to hear what you thought about that. I used to. <laughs> Um, first of all, I'm, I'm just sort of receiving that information yeah. because I didn't know that about the glaciers. I mean, in Venezuela, and if a country needs any more problems, I mean, it, you know, like what a lot. How and and what might those relationships be between what that country's struggling with? I don't know. Um, the fatalism and, and and what and you know, knowing to say goodbye is is a huge part of of allowing the reality of something, you know? Um, I think it's maybe one of the toughest things for our hearts to do is to hold both that goodbye and the promise of something for a future and a present at the same time. Because I don't think there's anything easy about it, and I, I think there is a goodbye. Um, but if it's, if it's where you stop... Then, so, so for me, my response to thinking about that is um, how hard it is to, it, it, it's understandable to not want to say goodbye. You, you, you pretend it's in a different shape. You think it's still there. And maybe while, if you fight, you know, melancholy is this recycling, right? In melancholy, they say, Freud says, man, Freud had a lot to offer, actually. You know, the idea that you, you won't let it go, you'll, you'll substitute something else. But then when you don't let it go, there's no room for what's new in the world to enter. And, and, and we, I think we have to reinvent and reimagine life on the planet and at the same time be saying goodbye when, when we have to. So where do you know, do you put all your attention furiously at what's lost or do you allow the love for what's lost to build something else? Yeah, I think I think it's. I mean, there is an interesting thought there as well about the instantaneous nature of of ecological grief in that context versus something slow moving like uh, like climate change, for instance. And I wonder. I I, I do wonder how how people respond differently to, to those two different things, you know, uh, and whether, it, how it impacts people. I mean, obviously when something like a hurricane or um, there's been, uh, in a Canadian context, there's been some massive forest fires that have like destroyed huge parts of uh, like Fort McMurray as an example. Um, these very quick and instantaneous events what I've seen, I don't know the Puerto Rican context. Well, I, I do, but don't. Um, but 
in the Fort McMurray context, I have heard stories of people who were planning to stay in those areas long-term deciding to move elsewhere because, you know, their attachment to, to that place is somewhat disentangled now, if that makes sense. Um, and I, I was think, reflecting on it as you were saying it, whether there was an instance where I felt that way. And I, I can think that on a very microcosm sort of scale, uh, we had the cabin that, uh, you know, my whole life we went to um, ever since I was very young and spent significant parts of time, amounts of time there. And there was a, a forest fire because it's in, it's in the woods. And the forest fire ended a couple kilometers away from the cabin. But at the time that it was approaching, we were trying to discuss like what, what to do. And we had come to the conclusion that if the forest fire, we weren't worried about the forest fire burning down our cabin. We were worried about it destroying the environment around it. And we had decided that we would basically find somewhere else uh, that we, because we weren't comfortable with the idea of this place that we cared so much about having to watch it in such a different form. Mm -hmm. And especially in the context of forest fire or in the context, but it, it kind of reminds me in some of those things. I've seen more instances of people instantly not necessarily detaching, they still care about the place, but it, when it changes so radically, so quickly, I, I just think it's a, it's a very different response than when something slowly changes and you're reflecting on it all the time versus when something just happens and you don't have the uh, slow sense of impending doom versus just this happens instantly. It's a very interesting question, even from, I guess, a on the research side of things, how people respond to an event like that in terms of ecological grief and what impacts them the most versus something slow that happens over time, right? It's, yeah. Yeah. So the thing about a forest fire is uh, it doesn't actually destroy the environment around your home because your environment I mean, it changes the place very radically, which uh, it destroys the environment around your home as far as people are concerned, absolutely, but it doesn't destroy the environment in reality because the natural ecosystem is actually designed for forest fires to happen. Uh, uh, so uh, it actually does need forest fires to happen, but yes, it, it can definitely destroy the cabin you're living in, uh, yeah, no, no doubt it, it changes it. Uh, but like when a forest fire happens in our environment, usually the dominant response is you get uh, shrub growth, alder growth, extensive alder growth. So there's a big difference between a, a mature black spruce forest or spruce forest with uh, lichen cover compared to a dense uh, shrub environment in terms of what you can even do on the landscape, right? Um, uh, it's, you know, you can't, you can't, over time, you know, these, it depends on the response to these landscapes. Like there, this fire has actually brought new 
things though. For instance, the, we do a lot of berry picking, um, blueberry picking, because the blueberries grow on these blueberry mm -hmm. shrubs in this fire. So it, it has changed our relationship mm -hmm. with the landscape around as well. Um, the type of berries that we actually acquire. So they're good and bad. It's more so long-term, you know that this environment is gonna take a long time on a human time scale to return to anything in the same form. It might never return to the same form. So if your attachment is to the place, it's uh, harder to see that, or it's hard to see that, that evolution, I suppose. Hi, my name is Paul Grogan, and I want to, I'm from biology, and I want to thank you both. You've both you. shared some very valuable insights. So what struck me, I liked the, um, the linkage, as it were, between uh, grieving for an individual who has passed away or who's passing away, or grieving because of a diagnosis that's a cancer diagnosis or something like that, and then ecological grief. And I was struck by, I gather in the medical profession, or, um, there's this idea of when one gets bad news, first of all, it's denial then it's anger, then it's bargaining, I think, then it's depression, and then it's acceptance, that there are these stages that one goes through. And as a biologist, the ecological grief issue, it strikes me, it's more or less inevitable that we're in this current situation. But for a whole lot of reasons, which I don't have time to go into, but there's a lot of good biological principles which would say, it's, we're another population, we're another species, sure, we have some unique characteristics, but it's somewhat inevitable that we're in this situation. And so it seems to me that moving towards acceptance of that would be a, a very powerful thing. Acceptance of the realities of our situation, which means we, we, we sort of modify our frame of mind. We move away from anger, move away from depression. Acceptance in an active way, in other words, still actively trying to do something about it, but recognizing the grand reality that there's something inevitable about the negative changes that are happening in the environment. So I'd be interested to hear your perspectives on that. It's your turn, Robert, to go okay. first. Okay, well, so one, what occurs to me in, in what you said is, so one of the things, if, if we think in terms of uh, indigenous people, and let's, let's think of the, of Inuit in particular, I mean, Inuit people historically have uh, their distribution across the north has changed in concert with environmental conditions to some degree, um, following the ebbs and flows of the sea ice over longer term time periods, uh, following species abundance, um, you know, trying going to new areas that are, you know hunting areas that are, are become more successful or less successful in concert with the environment. So in, if, if we look at a population, say, in the 1600s, uh, and the general way of life for Inuit people at that time, I think there is a profound resiliency and acceptance at that point in time that the environment will change and that you, you know, you can, at that point in time, you can be, you know, sad at the moment that you have to go to new areas, but it's the way of life. You follow uh, where you can. I think it's since we've introduced some of these more 
I don't want to say these more colonial forms, but where we've had such established settlements, we've become very rigid in a way that species don't ne aren't necessarily quite as rigid. We've you know we've stuck in place without really a means of being able to alter in concert with our environment, and uh, so I, I think that moving to acceptance is certainly something that I think we want, but I think we've done some things as a, as a species to make it a little bit more difficult to uh, to do so in the same way that, that maybe we could have uh, hundreds of years ago, um, just because we are stubbornly deciding to, you know, really root ourselves in an area and just deal with whatever happens. And I think there are modifications we can do, even even thinking of a city that can maybe bridge some of this, uh, some of the gap, but um, it actually happening maybe doesn't always, it doesn't always turn out that way. I don't know if you have anything to... Well, I think that's um, really interesting what you're saying about the stuckness of yeah. human beings. And I don't know biology at all, but I am so interested in what I'm reading. I'll show you, I brought my favorite book with me, which is a bunch of essays that are out of biology, some of them. Um, but, but, but we were talking, is it Janet? No, Lynn Margulis? Margulis? Lynn? Um, um, and Lovelock and the guy at principal, you know, with this biologist from 60s, 70s? 60s and 70s. Yeah, so we were talking about her in my drama class because of the idea of um, of, of, of nature uh, co-creating itself amongst intimate strangers. And that was her phrase, I believe. And that really struck us because we talked about this idea of, of intimate strangers. So maybe, you know, stopping to use plastic could be an adaptation, you know, a healthy adaptation to be able to continue to grow in the directions we need to grow. Um, and also maybe to live with, you know, to, to let cities look and be differently different, uh, differently different, that was a good one. But letting change happen, maybe not the way we expect it to. And that's where I think sometimes holding on to the image of the past as sort of the pure romantic, that's the right place, isn't, you know, it, it, it isn't necessarily, it's stuck too. There's yeah. a stuckness about that too. So the, the intimate strangers for us in the class discussion was the idea that maybe we need to not be so afraid of each other. And maybe we need, to, uh, my phrase for this is, you know, risk having tea with someone you don't know. And of course you'll screw up. And of course you'll mm -hmm. say something wrong. And if you have so many protections around all of our relationships and so many quantifying, you know, qual qualifiers... Um, that maybe, you know, I, I sort of say to, settler, to myself as a settler, stop apologizing for who you are and figure out who you are mm -hmm. and bring who you are because we don't have time to be paralyzed. And maybe being intimate strangers is an exciting idea from biology. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, I'm Julia. I'm a... Sorry. <coughs> Sick. <laughs> um, I'm a fourth year environmental biology student at Queen's um, and I really appreciate the discussion on the importance of acknowledging our anxieties and really fa facing our fears and sharing that with each other in order to move forward and um, 
and pairing that too with a tangible vision of the future that we do want to create. Um, but I've been struggling a bit with how to speak about what approach to take when I'm speaking about ecological and climate justice. And I find with some circles I've been in, there's this us versus them mentality that excludes people that are just uh, experiencing struggles similar to us um, that aren't the source of the problem. Um, but I wonder if you agree that, that humans still need a story with some sort of villain in it in order to unite behind it and, and be driven to create a better world. And in this case, I'm thinking of colonialism or neoliberalism as the villain. Um, so yeah, I'm curious about what, what story elements um, drive you. Oh, that's a great, that's really interesting in lots of levels. And I wish you could come visit my drama class, actually. <laughs> um, um, okay, let me see if I can get my brain around this, because so, there's a lot there. Uh, do we need a villain? Um, well, this I go back to Joy Kagawa, who is one of the few people I know who doesn't seem to have spent, she's spent a very difficult life never, you know, it, it, insisting on not doing that somehow. Um, but I was also, there's something in the Atlantic that I just picked up off the table the other day, and there's an article about anger in America. And in this article, um, the writer talks about Cesar Chavez, who's kind of spearheaded the, the great, the, the it, labor, big labor battle um, in the 50s, 50s, 60s, am I talking, into, seven, into the 70s. And it says that, um, that, that, that Chavez and his compatriots realized that anger needed to be mobilized um, and that if, that, that you, he said, you can't organize victims. You can't organize a bunch of victims. But if people realize, if they can do an analysis of the system and the structures that are the roots of the problem, then they will be able to fight. And I, I thought about that when you raised your question, because I, is understanding structures making an enemy? Not necessarily, right? Not necessarily. So I, I think... I think that is our tendency. And you know, that's what happens in the playground in kindergarten, right? Um, and we just unfortunately don't even, you know, we, we don't keep realizing we're still in the playground at kindergarten. So we don't, you know, maybe honoring our impulses and allowing ourselves to say, this is my impulse, and then going beyond that. Um, and there was something else in your question, but it might come to me later, why don't you? So for years, uh, I mean, I guess, 10, going on 10 plus years, um, I've had some affiliation with uh, a website called Skeptical Science. Now, this is a website that was built to, uh, it's, it was built initially to try and rebut um, climate change misinformation out there, and so there's various things, and um, it's a very it's become very popular as a website and there's a big community of contributors and, and one of the things that the creator, uh, John Cook, um, his research for his PhD that he started after creating this website and kind of came through this website was primarily aimed at trying to understand how to communicate uh, not just climate change science but how to convince people of um, facts in regards to climate change, in regards to environmental change on various issues. And based on his research and based on a whole body of literature, it's pr 
pretty important that, that we have a good understanding of the way in which that we approach communication with not just, la uh, not just people who haven't picked the sides, but the, the people who are kind of maybe a little bit on one side or another. So I, I find myself, I get frustrated at, at, at tactics sometimes used by various groups because they're somewhat, they don't help, they polarize, they actually put more people to one side. So it turns out that uh, a really good approach is to always envision if you are in the process of, of, of not necessarily arguing, but in, in this type of discussion on the topic, I try to always put in the back of my head that I'm talking to not necessarily this, this partisan person on the other side who has really strong views on that issue. The conversation is about the people who are undecided who are watching this conversation. Um, another thing that's really important is to try and, you know, if somebody, if, if, if you're, you know, if you do have this idea in regards to that this, uh, this person on the other side um, may, or this group may have their, uh, their feelings that are very strongly on this issue, and let's say climate change, there's lots of climate change uh, contrarians out there. I mean, one of the things that research shows is that there's a lot of root causes at that, and understanding them actually makes it easier to communicate. So. Uh, in the U.S., uh, in a lot of cases, it's not actually lack of scientific literacy that's the issue. A lot of people on the contrarian side actually have a high degree of scientific literacy. It actually comes down to uh, free market ideology as being a, a really strong predictor. And so what that does open the door to is the ways in which we talk about climate going forward and climate solutions there, there are some doorways you can go through where there are common grounds that can be found in having that dialogue. But I, I've always taken the position, and I think there's a lot of evidence out there from psychological research that, you know, if you take a really heavily partisan approach to a message, it's probably not going to resonate with the people who aren't heavily partisan. So, I, yeah, it's, it's a tough topic how to approach it. I would just say that... Um, the online atmosphere has made it more difficult mm -hmm. than it needs to be. Um, it's way too easy to not have personal interactions. If you have, you know, if you're talking to people over tea, over a coffee, um, it's a lot easier to find some sort of um, uh, measured response that people can get on board with. But when it comes to online atmosphere, it's, it's very challenging because it's very easy for people to go to such extreme lengths in terms of their views and it really demonize the other side. And maybe in some cases there are real demons, but in a lot of cases there are just people who, you know, have feelings that are not necessarily related to the subject matter that are influencing them. So it's a really convoluted way of saying that it's, it's really important to, to think about how we communicate and especially given that Sometimes the message is being chosen by, by groups, activists on whatever side, are actually pushing people away to the other side. And we don't want that necessarily. We just want evidence-based policies, right? And, yeah. Just, just to acknowledge the other thing that I think is really important in what you raised is, that, that is what stories do we live in? You know, 
What narratives do what? Um, and I think it's one, you know, it's, it's one it's part of what I do with this resilience training work, which is just called that because the word is better than drama to get people to come to something. But, but the idea that, that people have a story about you, but we have a story about ourselves too. And the victim, the victim story is, is a big one. It's a really big one. Um, but I think the idea that narratives can change and, and yeah, how do you just keep, I thought you were actually going to say, you're talking to the people that haven't decided something, but how do you look for the part of the person you're talking to yeah. that hasn't decided something? And, let your, and, and one of the biggest challenges to me is to let myself be willing to be surprised by someone I've made all these determinations mm-hmm. about. And that's not easy. Oh, anyway, thank you. <clears throat> that's a good point. Hi, I'm Joyce, and I thank you so much for the conversation. It's been great. I want to circle back to something that you started with, which was feeling. Uh, feeling. Go back to the feeling side of things. When you talked about feeling, it was from the emotional side of things. And there's another type of feeling. Mm-hmm. And Andres Weber, I've been reading his work, Biology of Wonder. Awesome book. Um, and... He talks about beauty as aliveness felt. And the type of feeling that he explores is almost back to the sixth sense that we don't talk about. When you go into a room and you can feel the energy of that room. And that in academia, we've been up in our heads with thought and we've lost a feeling as a different way of knowing the world. So I guess my question is how can we bring feeling as a way of knowing back into how we experience the world? And how will that change things? I think that, um, thank you for that, and I'd actually like to get that name from you later, because that, that helps me separate. When, you know when I started saying, well, I don't mean only just, just be feeling, don't, not thinking. Um, so for, for one thing, that actually makes an integration there. But... I think this idea of shimmer that we were talking about in my class that we were reading about sounds much more like this, this knowing of aliveness that's so much beyond ourselves and we don't necessarily have a cosmology to understand it with. I, I, honestly, I think really slowing down is a beginning and just letting ourselves be there. You know, we, we had, I have, I have two... Um, in my theater history class, I have two graduate students. They're both indigenous, Anishinaabe and Mohawk, and they came into my class and took us out walking around the campus. And um, somehow these things are allowing people to have permission to listen to something they want in themselves and that they know, that they do know, that we do know. Um, so I have six presentations that, I, that will happen next week in this testimony witnessing class. Two of the groups want to take us outside. Now, I'm in drama, so we have a lot more permission, and, you know, that, that's what we do in drama. But I think, we, we th- I think in drama, we think more about the emotional feeling, not so much the, the kind of aliveness, a listening, listening cellular aliveness, too. So, um, so I honestly think stopping, you know, stopping, breathing, slowing down, um, not having to have an argument for everything. Not even having a concept, but just what is it to be? And it's, you know, and ha- 
Karen Barad is this Karen Barad is this wonderful feminist physicist at Santa Cruz who I was able to meet a few times and what she said to me over lunch was it's really hard not to sound flaky right it's really hard not to sound flaky well let yourself sound friggin flaky just bring the rest of it with you and the rest of it you know is is um is necessary so thank you so much for bringing that up yeah, I don't. I don't really have much to add. That was that was very good. I, I think I agree with pretty much everything you just said there. And uh, I mean, to me, the the idea of of slowing down is so fundamental to it. I mean, it's you can't you you can't even begin to process what's going on around you when you're not even present. And and it's. I mean, it sounds simple, and every, we read everywhere everybody saying the same thing. Oh, we need to slow down. We need to slow down. But it, but it's it's quite serious. Um, if you're, I always think uh, sometimes when I've traveled through areas, um, and you go on autopilot, and then you go through that same area where you're not on autopilot and where you're actually just, you know, present, and you start actually starting to form some type of attachment to that that area just like even in something as simple as, as driving somewhere or something like that it's, it's just funny the way that um, your brain and the level of attention you're giving completely in, uh, mediates how you're interpreting a room an environment uh, you know if I if I'm sitting up here and I'm thinking oh well you know my midterm is due today I gotta hand that in then what I'm feeling in this room is uh not going to be authentic and it's also um, going to be the bare minimum that, that I could give to this conversation and I think unfortunately uh, it's actually one of the things I appreciate a bit about teaching uh, in some capacity because regardless of what you're doing in the lead up to teaching um, you stand up there and you kind of have to pay attention unless you're you know and I don't try to like, I mean, I, I have materials, but I don't try to, you know, write out everything I intend to say because I feel that when you're focused on, and the same thing goes for most presentations I give and things like that. If I'm worried about following my script, mm -hmm. then I'm not actually mm -hmm. necessarily there in an authentic way and actually able to read the room at all. Um, you're just focused on, oh, I'm following this script. I'm not actually interpreting uh, how the students are necessarily feeling or, um, you know, it, yeah. You're just thinking, isn't it interesting that one of the places where we have to stop is if we sit by a bedside with someone mm -hmm. who's very ill or really close to death. We have to stop and how hard that is. And then, but then... But then what a relief it is. What a relief it is that you actually have this relationship. If, you know, there you are. And th these are sometimes, I think, the few places. I mean, years ago I had an adored cat who got cancer, and I spent weeks sitting with him on my lap. And I felt as if he was teaching me about something I would need to know in the future. And <laughs> we, we rarely just 
stop. I wish we had scheduled far more time for this conversation. Maybe a few days, weeks. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing with us today. Thanks for introducing Thank us. You have been listening to a conversation in the Fireplace series at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. I am Dr. Barbara Crow, Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Science. Music for this series is from the composition The Passion of Angels by Queen's composer Marianne Mozedich. Thank you for listening, and please visit CFRC Radio at cfrc.ca to hear more talks in this series. <laughs>